Chapters forty through forty three of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter forty, as it was in the beginning. The kitchen was empty, but light fell through the door of the shop, opening upon the little hall between. Rosalie crossed the hall and stood in the doorway of the shop, a figure of concentrated indignation, despair, and shame. Leaning on his elbow, Charlie was bending over a book in the light of a candle on the bench beside him. He was reading aloud, translating into English, the German text of the narrative the curé had given him. And because of this divine interposition, consequent upon their faithful prayers and their obligations, they did perform these holy scenes from season to season, with solemn proof of piety and godly living, so that it seemed the life of the Lord our Shepherd was ever present with them, as though, indeed, Oberammergau were Nazareth or Jerusalem. And the hearts of all in the land did answer daily to that sweet and lively faith, insomuch that even in times of war the zeal of the people became a holy zeal, and their warfare noble, so that they did accept both victory and defeat with equal humbleness. Because there was no war in their hearts but peace, and they did fight to defend and not to acquire, they buried their foe with tears and their own with singleness of heart and quiet joy, for that they did rest from their labors. In this manner was the great tragedy and glory of the world made to the people a present thing, transforming them to the body of the life that hath neither spot nor blemish nor... Charlie had not heard Rosalie enter nor her footsteps in the hall. But now there ran through his reading a thread of something not of himself or of it. He had thrilled to the archaic but clear-hearted style of the old German chronicler, and the warmth he felt had passed into his voice so that it became louder. As Rosalie listened to his reading, a hundred thoughts rushed through her mind. Paulette Dubois, the wanton woman, had just left his doorway secretly, yet there he was, instantly after, calmly reading a pious book. Her mind was in tumult. She could not reason, she could not rule her judgment. She only knew that the woman had come from this house and hurried guiltily away into the dark. She only knew that the man the woman had left here was the man she loved, loved more than her life, for he embodied all her past, all her present. She knew that she could not live without him, all her future, for where he went she would go, whatever the fate. Her judgment had been swept from its moorings. She had been carried on the wave of her heart's fever into this room, not daring to think this or that, not planning this or that, not accusing, not reproaching, not shaming herself and him by black suspicion, but blindly, madly demanding to see him, to look into his eyes, to hear his voice, to know him, whatever he was, man, lover, or devil. She was a child woman, a child in her primitive feelings that threw aside all convention, because there was no wrong in her heart, a woman because she was possessed by a jealousy which shamed and angered her, because its very existence put him on trial, condemned him. Her soul was the sport of emotions and passions stronger than herself, because the heritage, the instinct of all the race of women, the eternal predisposition. At the moment her will was not sufficient to rule them to obedience. 
she was in the first subservience to that power which feeds the streams of human history. As she now listened to Charlie reading, a sudden revulsion of feeling came over her. Some note in his voice reassured her heart, if it needed reassuring. The quiet force of his presence stilled the tumult in her, so that her eyes could see without mist, her heart beat without agony. But every pulse in her was throbbing, every instinct was alive. Presently there rushed upon her the words that had rung in her ears and chimed in her heart at the rest of the flax-beaters. Take all, dear love, thou art my life's defender. Speak to my soul, take life and love, take all. Feelings lying beneath the mad conflict of emotion which had sent her into this room in such unmaidenly fashion, feelings that were her deepest self, welled up. Her breath came hard and broken. As Charlie read on, a breathing seemed to answer his own. It became quicker than his own. It pierced the stillness. It filled the room with feeling. It came calling to him out of the silence. He swung round and saw the girl in the doorway. "'Rosalie!' he cried, and sprang to his feet. With the piteously pathetic cry, she flung herself on her knees beside the tailor's bench where he worked every day, and, burying her face in her arms as they rested on the bench, wept bitterly. "'Rosalie!' he said anxiously, leaning over her. "'What is the matter? What has happened?' She wept more bitterly still. She made a despairing gesture. His hand touched her hair. He dropped on a knee beside her. "'Oh, I am so ashamed, ashamed! I have been so wicked!' she murmured. "'Rosalie, what has happened?' he urged gently. His own heart was beating hard, his own eyes were responding to hers. The new feelings alive in him, the forces his love had awakened which last night had kept him sleepless and had been upon him like a dream all day, they were at height in him now. He knew not how to command them. "'Rosalie, dearest, tell me all,' he persisted. "'I shall never, I have been, oh, you will never forgive me,' she said brokenly. "'I knew it wasn't true, but I couldn't help it. I saw her, the woman, come from your house and—' "'Hush, for God's sake, hush,' he broke in almost harshly. Then a better understanding came upon him, and it made him gentle with her. "'Ah, Rosalie, you do not think. But—but but it was natural you should wish to see me.' but as soon as I saw you I knew that—that—' She broke down again and wept. "'I will tell you about her, Rosalie.' His fingers stroked her hair, and, bending over her, his face was near her hands. "'No, no, tell me nothing. Oh, if you tell me—' She came to hear from me what she sought to have heard from the notary. She has had great trouble. The man, her child, and I have helped her, told her. His face was so near now that his breath was on her hair. She suddenly raised her head and clasped his face in her hands. "'I knew, oh, I knew, I knew!' she wept, and her eyes drank his. "'Rosalie, my life!' he cried, clasping her in his arms. The love that was in him, newborn but half understood, poured itself out in broken words like her own. For him there was no outside world, no past, no Kathleen, no Billy no suspicion or infidelity, or unfaith, no fear of disaster, no terrors of the future. Life was now to him and to her. Nothing brooded behind, nothing lay before. The candle spluttered and burnt low in the socket. End of chapter 40
Chapter 41 It Was Michaelmas Day Not a cloud in the sky, and, ruling all, a sweet sun, liberal in warmth and eager in brightness as its distance from the northern world decreased. As Mrs. Flynn entered the door of the post-office she sang out to Maximilian Coeur with a buoyant lilt, "'Oh, isn't it the fun of the world to be alive!' The tailor over the way heard it and lifted his head with a smile. Rosalie Evanterel, behind the postal wicket, heard it, and her face swam with color. Rosalie busied herself with the letters and papers for a moment before she answered Mrs. Flynn's greeting for there were ringing in her ears the words she herself had said a few days before. It is good to live, isn't it? Today it was so good to live that life seemed an endless being and a tireless happy doing, a gift of labor, an inspiring daytime, and a rejoicing sleep. Exaltation, a painful joy, and a wide embarrassing wonderment possessed her. She met Mrs. Flynn's face at the wicket with shining eyes and a timid smile. "'Ay, there ye are, darlin,' said Mrs. Flynn. "'And how's the dear father to-day?' "'He seems about the same, thank you. "'Ah, that's fine. "'Sure if we could always be about the same, we'd do. "'True for you, darlin, tis as you say. "'If old Mary Flynn could always be about the same, "'the clods of the valley would never cover her bones. "'But there tis, we're here to-day and away to-morrow. "'Sure, though, I am not complainin'. "'Not I, not Mary Flynn.' Terry Flynn used to say to me, says he, never born to no distress, happy as worms in the garden of cucumbers. Seventeen years in this country, Mary, says he, and never in the penitentiary yet. There ye are. Ah, the birds do be singin' to-day. Tis good, tis good, darlin'. You'll not mind Mary Flynn callin' ye darlin', though ye are postmistress, and it'll be more than that, more than that one day, or Mary Flynn's a fool.' ay more than that you'll be darlin and your eyes like purty brown topazes and your cheeks like roses sure is there any leather for mary flynn darlin she hastily added as she saw the seigneur standing in the doorway he had evidently been listening you didn't hear what your old fool of a cook was sayin she added to the seigneur as rosalie shook her head and answered no letters madame dear rosalie timidly added the dear for there was something so great-hearted in Mrs. Flynn that she longed to clasp her round the neck, longed as she had never done in her life to lay her head upon some motherly breast and pour out her heart. But it was not to be now. Secrecy was her duty still. "'Can't you speak to your old fool of a cook, sir?' Mrs. Flynn said again, as the seigneur made way for her to leave the shop. "'How did you guess?' he said to her in a low voice, his sharp eyes peering into hers by the looks in your face these past weeks, and the look in hers, she whispered, and went on her way rejoicing. I wind them both round me finger like a wisp of straw, she said, going up the road with a light step, despite her weight, till she was stopped by the malicious grocer man of the village, whose tongue had been wagging for hours upon an unwholesome theme. Meanwhile, in the post-office, the Signor and Rosalie were face to face. It is Michaelmas Day, he said. May I speak with you, mademoiselle? She looked at the clock. It was on the stroke of noon. The shop always closed from twelve till half-past twelve. Will you step into the parlor, monsieur? she said, and coming round the counter, locked the shop door. She was trembling and confused, and entered the little parlor shyly. Yet her eyes met the seigneur's bravely. 
"'Your father, how is he?' he said, offering her a chair. The sunlight streaming in the window made a sort of pathway of light between them while they were in the shade. "'He seems no worse, and today he is wheeling himself about. He is stronger, then, that's good. Is there any fear that he must go to the hospital again?' She inclined her head. "'The doctor says he may have to go any moment. It may be his one chance.' The curé is very kind and says that, with your permission, his sister will keep the office here if, if needed. The Seigneur nodded briskly. Of course, of course. But have you not thought that we might secure another postmistress? Her face clouded a little. Her heart beat hard. She knew what was coming. She dreaded it, but it was better to have it over now. We could not live without it, she said helplessly. What we have saved is not enough. The little my mother had must pay for the visits to the hospital. I have kept it for that. You see, I need the place here. But you have thought just the same. Do you not know the day? he asked meaningly. She was silent. I have come to ask you to marry me. This is Michaelmas Day, Rosaline. She did not speak. He had hopes for her silence. If anything happened to your father, you could not live her alone, but a young girl. Your father may be in the hospital for a long time. You cannot afford that. If I were to offer you money, you would refuse. If you marry me, all that I have is yours, to dispose of at your will, to make others happy, to take you now and then from this narrow place, to see what's going on in the world. I am happy here, she said falteringly. Chaudiere is the finest place in the world, he replied proudly, and as a matter of fact but for the sake of knowledge you should see what the rest of the world is. It helps you to understand Chaudier better. I ask you to be my wife, Rosalie. She shook her head sorrowfully. You said before it was not because I am old, not because I am rich, not because I am Signor, not because I am I, that you refused me. She smiled at him now. That is true, she said. Then what reason can you have? None, none, no. Upon honor, I believe you are afraid of marriage because it's marriage. By my life, there's naught to dread. A little giving here and taking there, and it's easy. And when a woman is all that's good to a man, it can be done without fear or trembling. Even the curé would tell you that. Ah, I know, I know, she said in a voice half painful, half joyous. I know that it is so. "'But, oh, dear Monsieur, I cannot marry you, never, never!' he hung on bravely. "'I want to make life easy and happy for you. I want the right to do so. When trouble comes upon you. When it does, I will turn to you. Ah, yes, I would turn to you without fear, dear Monsieur,' she said, and her heart ached within her, for a premonition of sorrow came upon her and filled her eyes and made her heart like lead within her breast.' I know how true a gentleman you are, she added. I could give you everything but that which is life to me, which is being and soul, and the beginning and the end. The weight of the revealing hour of her life, its wonder, its agony, its irrevocability, was upon her. It was giving new meanings to existence, primitive woman, child of nature as she was. All morning she had longed to go out into the woods 
and bury herself among the ferns and bracken, and laugh and weep for very excess of feeling downright joy and vague woe possessing her at once. She looked the Signor in the eyes with consuming earnestness. "'Oh, it is not because I am young,' she said in a low voice, "'for I am old. Indeed, I am very old. It is because I cannot love you, and never can love you in the one great way, and I will not marry without love. My heart is fixed on that. When I marry, it will be when I love a man so much that I cannot live without him. If he is so poor that each meal is a miracle, it will make no difference. Oh, can't you see, can't you feel what I mean, Monsieur? You who are so wise and learned, and know the world so well? Wise and learned, he said a little roughly, for his voice was husky with emotion. Pon honneur, I think I am a fool a bewildered fool that knows no more of woman than my cook knows Sanskrit. Faith a hundred times less, for Mary Flynn's got an eye to see, and without telling she knew I had a mind set on you. But Mary Flynn thought more than that, for she has an idea that you've a mind set on some one, Rosalie. She thought it might be me. A woman is not so easily read as a man, she replied, half smiling, but with her eyes turned to the street. A few people were gathering in front of the house. She wondered why. There is someone else. That is it, Rosalie. There is someone else. You shall tell me who it is. You shall. He stopped short, for there was a loud knocking at the shop door, and the voice of M. Evanterel calling, Rosalie, 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 ah, come quickly, ah, my Rosalie. Without a look at the Signor, Rosalie rushed into the shop and opened the front door. Her father was deathly pale and was trembling violently. "'Rosalie, my bird,' he cried indignantly, "'they're saying you stole the cross from the church door.' He was now wheeled inside the shop, and people gathered round looking at him and Rosalie, some covertly, some as friends, some in a half-frightened way, as though strange things were about to happen. "'Sure tis a lie or me name's not Mary Flynn, the darlin', said the Signor's cook with blazing face. "'Who makes this charge?' roared an angry voice. No one had seen the Signor enter from the little room beside the shop, and at the sound of the sharp voice the people fell back, for he was as free with his stick as his tongue. "'I do,' said the grocer, to whom Paulette Dubois had told her story. "'Ye shall be tarred and feather before ye are a day older,' said Mary Flynn. Rosalie was very pale. The Signor was struck by this, and by the strangeness of her look. "'Clear the room,' he said to Philian Lacasse, who was now a constable of the parish. "'Not yet,' said a voice at the doorway. "'What is the trouble?' It was the curé who had already heard rumours of the scandal, and had come at once to Rosalie. Amy Vanterell tried to speak, and could not. But Mary Flynn did, with a face like a piece of scarlet bunting. Having finished with a flourish, she could scarce keep her hands off the cowardly grocer. The curé turned to Rosalie. "'It is absurd,' he said. "'Forgive me,' he added to the Signor. "'It is better that Rosalie should answer this charge. If she gives her word of honor, I will deny communion to whoever slanders her hereafter.' "'She did it,' said the grocer stubbornly. "'She can't deny it.' "'Answer, Rosalie,' said the curé firmly. "'Excuse me, I will answer,' said a voice at the door. The tailor of Chaudier made his way into the shop to the fast-gathering crowd. End of chapter 41
Chapter 42 A Trial and a Verdict "'What right have you to answer for Mademoiselle?' said the Seigneur, with a sudden rush of jealousy. "'Was not he alone the protector of Rosalie Evanturel? Yet here was mystery, and it was clear the tailor had something important to say. M. Rossignol offered the curé a chair, seated himself on a small bench, and gently drew Rosalie down beside him. "'I will make this a court,' said he. "'Advance, grocer.' The grocer came forward smugly. "'On what information do you make this charge against Mademoiselle?' The grocer volubly related all that Paulette Dubois had said. As he told his tale the curé's face was a study, for the night the cross was restored came back to him, and the events, so far as he knew them, was in keeping with the grocer's narrative. He looked at Rosalie anxiously. Monsieur Evanturel moaned, for he remembered he had heard Rosalie come in very late that night. Yet he fixed his eyes on her in dog-like faith. "'Mademoiselle will admit that this is true, I presume,' said Charlie. Rosalie looked at him intently, as though to read his very heart. It was clear that he wished her to say yes, and what he wished was law. "'It is quite true,' answered Rosalie calmly, and all fear passed from her. "'But she did not steal the cross,' continued Charlie in a louder voice, "'that all might hear, for people were gathering fast. "'If she didn't steal it, why was she putting it back on the church door in the dark?' said the grocer. "'Ah, hold your head, old sand in the sugar,' said Mrs. Flynn, her fingers aching to get into his hair. "'Silence!' said the seigneur severely, and looked inquiringly at Rosalie. Rosalie looked at Charlie. "'It is not a question of why Mademoiselle put the cross back,' he said. "'It is a question of who took the cross away, is it not? Suppose it was not a theft. Suppose that the person who took the relic thought to do a pious act for your church, monsieur. I do not see, the curé answered helplessly. It was a secret act, therefore suspicious at least. Let your good gifts be in secret, and your heavenly Father who seeth in secret will reward you openly, answered Charlie. That, I believe, is a principle you teach, monsieur. At one time monsieur the tailor was thought to have taken the cross, said the seigneur suggestively. Perhaps monsieur was secretly doing good with it, he added. It vexed him that there should be a secret between Rosalie and this man. "'It had to do with me, not I with it,' he answered evenly. He must travel wide at first to convince their narrow brains. Mademoiselle did a kind act when she nailed that cross on the church door again, to make a dead man rest easier in his grave. A hush fell upon the crowd. Rosalie looked at Charlie in surprise, but she saw his meaning presently that what she did for him must seem to have been done for the dead tailor only. Her heart beat hot with indignation, for she would, if she but might, cry her love gladly from the hilltops of the world. A light began to break upon the curé's mind. "'Will Monsieur speak plainly?' he said. "'I did not see Louis Trudel take the cross, but I know that he did.' "'Louis Trudel! Louis Trudel!' interposed the Seigneur anxiously. "'What does this mean?' Monsieur speaks the truth, interposed Rosalie. The curé recalled the deathbed of Louis Trudel and the dying man's strange agitation. He also recalled old Margot's death and her wish to confess someone else's wrongdoing. He was convinced that Charlie was speaking the truth. It is true, added Charlie slowly. 
but you may think none the worse of him when you know all. He took the cross for temporary use, and before he could replace it he died. How do you know what he meant and did not mean? said the Seigneur in perplexity. Did he take you into his confidence? The very closest, answered Charlie grimly. Yet he looked upon you as an infidel, and said hard things of you on his deathbed, urged the curé anxiously. He could not see the end of the tale, and he was troubled for both the dead man and the living. That was why he took me into his confidence. I will explain. I have not the honor to have the fullness of your Christian faith, Monsieur le Curé. I had asked him to show me a sign from heaven, and he showed it by the little cross. I can't make anything of that, said the Seigneur peevishly. Rosalie sprang to her feet. He would not tell the whole truth, Messieurs, but I will. With that little cross Louis Trudel would have killed Monsieur, had it not been for me. A gasp of excitement went out from those who stood by. But for you, Rosalie? asked the curé. But for me. I saw Louis Trudel raise an iron against Monsieur that day in the shop. It made me nervous. I thought he was mad. So I watched. That night I saw a light in the tailor's shop late. I thought it strange. I went over and peeped through the cracks of the shutters. I saw old Louis at the fire with a little cross red hot. I knew he meant trouble. I ran into the house. Old Margot was beside herself with fear. She had seen also. I ran through the hall and saw old Louis upstairs with the burning cross. I followed. He went into Monsieur's room. When I got to the door... She paused, trembling, for she saw Charlie's reproving eyes upon her. I saw him with the cross, with the cross raised over Monsieur. He meant to threaten me, interposed Charlie quickly. We will have the truth, said the Seigneur in a husky voice. The cross came down on Monsieur's bare breast. The grocer laughed vindictively. Silence! growled the Seigneur. Silence! said Philian Lacasse, and dropped his hand on the grocer's shoulder. I'll baste you with a stirrup strap. The rest is well known, quickly interposed Charlie. The poor old man was mad. He thought it a pious act to mark an infidel with a cross. Every eye was fixed upon him. The curé remembered Louis Trudel's last words. Look, look, I gave him the sign of... Old Margot's words also kept ringing in his ears. He turned to the Seigneur. Monsieur, said he, we have heard the truth. That act of Louis Trudel was cruel and murderous. May God forgive him. I will not say that Mademoiselle did well in keeping silent. God bless the darling, cried Mrs. Finn. But I will say that she meant to do a kind act for a man's mortal memory, perhaps at the expense of his soul. For Monsieur to take his injury in silence, to keep it secret was kind, said the Seigneur. It is what our curé here might call bearing his cross manfully. Seigneur, said the curé reproachfully, Seigneur, it is no subject for jest. Curé, our tailor here has treated it as a jest. Let him show his breast if it's true, said the grocer, who beneath his smirking was a malignant soul. The curé turned on him sharply. Seldom had anyone seen the curé roused. Who are you, Baptiste Maxime, that your base curiosity should be satisfied, you whose shameless tongue clattered, whose foolish soul rejoiced over the scandal? Must we all wear the facts of our lives, our joys, our sorrows, and our sins, for such eyes as yours to read? Bethink you of the evil things that you would hide. Ah, everyone here, he added loudly, know, all of you, what goodness of heart towards a wicked man lay behind the secret these two have kept. 
that old Margot carried to her grave. When you go to your homes, pray for as much human kindness as you, as a man of no church or faith can show. For this child, he turned to Rosalie, honor her. Go now, go in peace. One moment, said the Seigneur. I find Baptiste Maxime twenty dollars for defamation of character, the money to go for the poor. You hear that old sand in the sugar? said Mrs. Flynn. Will you let me kiss ye, darling? she added to Rosalie, and waddling over, reached out her hands. Rosalie's eyes were wet as she warmly kissed the old Irish woman, and thereupon they entered into a friendship which was without end. The Seigneur drove the crowd from the shop and shut the door. The curé came to Charlie. Monsieur, said he, I have no words. When I remember what agonies you suffered in those hours, how bravely you endured them, ah, Monsieur, he added with moist eyes, I shall always feel that, that you are not far from the kingdom of God. A silence fell upon them, for the curé, the seigneur, and Rosalie, as they looked at Charlie, thought of the scar like a red cross on his breast. It touched Charlie with a kind of awe. He smiled painfully. "'Shall I give you proof?' he said, making a motion to undo his waistcoat. "'Monsieur!' said the seigneur reprovingly, and holding out his hand. "'Monsieur, we are all gentlemen.' End of chapter 42 Chapter 43 Joe Portugay Tells a Story Walking slowly, head-bent, eyes on seeing, Charlie was on his way to Vadrome Mountain with the knowledge that Joe Portugay had returned. The hunger for companionship was on him, to touch some mind that could understand the deep loneliness which had settled on him since that scene in the post-office. It was the loneliness of a new and great separation. He had wakened to it to-day. Once before in the hut on Vadrome Mountain he had wakened from a grave, had been born again. Last night had come still another birth, had come, as with Rosalie herself, knowledge, revelation, understanding. To Rosalie the new vision had come with the vague pain of heart, without shame, and with a wonderful happiness. Pain, shame, knowledge, and a happiness that passed suddenly into a despairing sorrow had come to him. In finding love he had found conscience, and in finding conscience he was on his way to another great discovery. Looking to where Joe Portugais's house was set among the pines, Charlie remembered the day. He saw the scene in his mind's eye, when Rosalie entered with the letter addressed to the sick man at the house of Joe Portugais at Padrome Mountain, and he saw again her clear unsoiled soul in the deep inquiring eyes. "'If you but knew,' he turned and looked down at the village below. "'If you but knew,' he said, as though to all the world." I have the sign from heaven. I know it now. Today I wake to know what life means, and I see, Rosalie, I know now. But how? In taking all she had to give. What does she get in return? Nothing. Nothing. Because I love her, because the whole world is nothing beside her, nor life, nor twenty lives, if I had them to give. I must say to her now, Rosalie, it was love that brought you to my arms. It is love that says, thus far, and no farther. Never again, never, never, never. Yesterday I could have left her, died or vanished, without real hurt to her. She would have mourned and broken her heart and mended it again. 
and I should have been only a memory, of mystery, of tenderness. Then one day she would have married, and no sting from my going would have remained. She would have had happiness, and I neither shame nor despair. Today it is all too late. We have drunk too deep, alas, too deep. She cannot marry another man, for ghosts will not lie for asking, and what is mine may not be another's. She cannot marry me, for what was once mine is mine still by ring and by book, and I should always be haunted by a torturing shadow. Kathleen has the right of way, not Rosalie. Ah, Rosalie, I dare not wrong you any further. Yet to marry you even as things are, if that might be. To live on here, unrecognized. I am little like my old self, and year after year I should grow less and less like Charlie Steele. But no, it is not possible. He stopped short in his thoughts, and his lips tightened in bitterness. God in heaven, what an impasse, he said aloud. There was a sudden cracking of twigs as a man rose up from a log by the wayside ahead of him. It was Joe Portugais, who had seen him coming and had waited for him. He had heard Charlie's words. "'Do you call me an impasse, monsieur?' Charlie grasped Portugais' hand. "'What has happened, monsieur?' Joe asked anxiously. There was a brief silence, and then Charlie told him of the events of the morning. "'You know of the mark here?' he asked, touching his breast. Joe nodded. I saw when you were ill. Yet you never asked. I studied it out. I knew old Louis Trudel. Also I saw Mamselle nail the cross to the church door. Two and two together in my mind did it. I didn't think Paulette Dubois would tell. I warned her. She quarreled with Mademoiselle. It was revenge. She might have been less vindictive. She had had good luck herself lately. What good luck had she, monsieur? Charlie told Joe the story of the notary, the woman, and the child. Joe made no comment. They relapsed into silence. Arriving at the house they entered. Joe lighted his pipe and smoked steadily for a time without speaking. Buried in thought, Charlie stood in the doorway looking down at the village. At last he turned. "'Where have you been these weeks past, Joe?' "'To Quebec first, monsieur.' Charlie looked curiously at Joe for there was meaning in his tone. And where last? To Montreal. Charlie's face became paler, his hands suddenly clinched, for he read the look in Joe's eyes. He knew that Joe had been looking at people and places once so familiar, that he had seen Kathleen. Go on, tell me all, he said heavily. Portugais spoke in English. The foreign language seemed to make the truth less naked and staring to himself. He had a hard story to tell. "'It is not to say why I go to Montreal,' he began, "'but I go. I have my ears open, my eyes. She is not close. No one knows me. I am no account of. Everyone is forgot the man Joseph Nadeau, who is tried for his life. Perhaps it is everyone is forget the lawyer who save his neck perhaps? So I stand by the street-side. I say to a man as I look up at signboards, Where is that writing Monsieur Charles Steele and all the rest? He is dead long ago, said the man to me. A good thing, too, for he was the very devil. I not understand, I say. 
I think that M'sieu Steele is a damn smart man back time. He was the smartest man in the country, that beauty Steele, the man say. He bamboozled the jury every time. He cut up bad, though. Charlie raised his hand with a nervous gesture of misery and impatience. "'Where have you been?' that man say. "'Where have you been all these times not to know about Charlie Steele, ain't? "'In the backwoods,' I say. "'What bring you here now?' he asked. "'I have a case,' I say. "'What is it?' he asked. "'It is a case of a man who is punished for another man,' I say. "'That's the thing for Charlie Steele,' he laughed. "'He was a great man to root things out. "'Can't fool Charlie Steele,' we used to say here but he died a bad death what was the matter with him i say he drink too much he spend too much he run after a girl at cote d'orion and the river drivers do for him one night they say it was accident but is more than any green on my eye but he died trump just like him he have no fear of devil or man so the man say but fear of god i ask he was hinfandel he say that was behind all he was crooked all round he robbed the widow and orphan. I think he too smart for that. I speak quick. I suppose it was the drink, he say. He loose his grip. He was a smart man, and he would make you all sit up if he come back, I answer. If he come back? The man laughed queer at that. If he come back, there would be hell. How is that, I say? Look across the street, he whispered. That was his wife. Charlie choked back a cry in his throat. Joe had no intention of cutting his story short he had an end in view. I look across the street. There she is. Ah, that is a fine woman to see. I have never seen but one more finer to look at, here in Chaudier. The man say she marry first for money and break her heart. Now she marry for love. If beauty still come back, eh, sacré, that would be a mess. But he is at the bottom of the St. Lawrence. The courts say so, and the church say so, and ghosts don't walk here but if that beauty steel come back alive what would happen it i speak his wife is married blockhead he say but this woman is his i answer don't you think she would go back to a thief she never loved from the man she loved he speak back she is not married to the other man i say if beauty steel is he is dead as a door he swear you see that he go on nodding down the street well that is billy who is billy i ask the brother of her he say Charlie, he spoiled Billy. Billy, he has not been the same since Charlie's death. He is so ashamed of Charlie. When he get drunk, he talk of nothing else. We all remember that Charlie spoiled him, and that makes us sorry for him. Excuse me, I say. I think that Billy is a damn smart man. He is smart as Charlie Steele. Charlie was the smartest man in the country, he say again. I've got his practice now, but this town will never be the same without him thief or no thief, I wish he is alive here. By the Lord, I'd get drunk with him. He was all right, that man. Joe added finally. Charlie's agitation was hidden. His eyes were fixed on Joe intently. That was Larry Rockwell. Go on, he said in a hard metallic voice. I see her the next night again. It is in the white stone house on the hill. All the windows are open, and I can hear her to sing. I know not that song. It begin oft in the stilly night, like that. Charlie stiffened. It was the song Kathleen sang for him the night they became engaged. It is a good voice, that. I see her face, for there is a candle on the piano. I come close and closer to the house. 
There is big maple trees. I am well hid. A man is beside her. He lean over her and put his hand on her shoulder. Sing it again, Kathleen, he say. I cannot to get enough. Stop, said Charlie, in a strained, harsh voice. Not yet, monsieur, said Portugais. It is good for you to hear what I say. Come, Kathleen, the man say, and he blow out the candle. I hear them walk away, and the door shut behind them. Then I hear another voice. Ah, that is a baby, very young baby. Charlie quickly got to his feet. Not another word, he said. Yes, yes, but there is one word more, monsieur, said Joe, standing up and facing him firmly. You must go back. You are not a thief. The woman is yours. You throw your life away. What is the man to you, or the man's brat of a child? It is all waiting for you. You must go back. You not steal the money, but that Billy, it is that Billy I know. You can forgive your wife and take her back, or you can say to both, Go, you can put everything right and begin again. Anger, wild words, seemed about to break from Charlie's lips, but he conquered himself. The old life had been brought back to him with painful acuteness and vividness. The streets of the town, the people in the street, Billy the mean scoundrel, who could not leave him alone in the grave of obscurity, Kathleen, Faring. The voice of the child, with her voice, was in his ears. A child! If he had had a child, perhaps! He stopped short in his thinking, his face all at once flooding with color. For a moment he stood looking out of the window down towards the village. He could see the post-office like a toy house among toy houses. At last he turned to Joe. Never again while I live speak of this to me, of the past, of going back, or of, of anything else, he said. I cannot go back. I am dead and shamed. Let the dust of forgetfulness come and cover the past. I've begun life again here, and here I stay and see it out. I shall work out the problem here. He dropped a hand on the other's shoulder. Joe, said he, we are both shipwrecks. Let us see how long we can float. Monsieur, is it worth it? said Portugais, remembering his confession to the Abbey and seeing the end of it all to himself. I don't know, Joe. Let us wait and see how fate will play us. Or God, monsieur? God or fate? Who knows? End of chapter 43. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.